that despite kind of ongoing struggle and despite what people are going through, um, people who use drugs just have immense potential and a lot to give and can really change society, can change policies and really can save lives. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. People who use drugs are intensely marginalized in society, existing in a world where structural violence regularly strikes. Bad things happen, and a lifelong accumulation of harm done can feel tremendously heavy. So drug use, maybe typically at first, is one way to make these burdens feel a bit lighter. Today, we'll be talking about the world of women who are incarcerated and criminalized for merely existing in this kind of world. Instead of being helped and treated compassionately, women who use drugs, especially if they're pregnant, typically face intense scrutiny by the police, the courts, the media, and social service institutions. I'm Zachary Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica. With me today is a special guest, Dr. Kim Su, the medical director of the Harm Reduction Coalition. Kim, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm just going to sort of list off your credentials here. You're a primary care doctor at Mass General Hospital, which is, you know, Harvard's medical school, basically. And if that isn't impressive enough, you also have a PhD in anthropology. And so this, uh, what we're going to be talking about is your is your book, which is uh, uh, ethnographic research. Uh, it's called Getting Wrecked, Women, Incarceration, and the American Opioid Crisis, published by the University of California Press. So did I get all that right? Uh, yeah, I did my medical uh, residency and training at Mass General Hospital in primary care and internal medicine, but I'm not there anymore uh, since I moved to New York. And most of the patients I see now for primary care are actually at Rikers Island. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, well, so maybe we'll get into it. Do you work with... Uh, Dr. Giftos. Yes, I do. Very closely. Yeah. I mean, wow, you two are like my favorite doctors on the planet. <laughs> we were just doing a training on uh, a couple days ago together. Wow. So to, to begin, I mean, I, I definitely want to talk more about that. Um, but to sort of start off with, with getting wrecked and, and start off with your book, um, you know, you write that this book explores what happens to women with opioid addiction inside the prisons and jails in Massachusetts and in the aftermath of incarceration. And so you took, you undertook uh, two years of ethnographic research inside of uh, Massachusetts prisons and jails and, and the treatment community, maybe quote unquote treatment there. Um, 
And so you spoke to over 30 women who were in this system and you followed them as they tried to navigate the uh, often Kafka-esque and labyrinth kind of bureaucracy in these institutions. Um, Can you, you know, maybe start by uh, what motivated you to approach this, like, especially difficult topic? Definitely. This topic intrigued me because in medicine, we often knew people became incarcerated for substance use. And I always wondered, you know, what happens when women get arrested for a substance use issue? Um, For us, we see people on the outside, we see them struggling, we hear they become incarcerated, it's a black box, we may or may not see them afterwards. And I really wanted to understand what happens to women on the inside. And I really felt that there was um, a place and a role for a medical anthropologist to kind of take that lens and look at you know, what actually does happen there, and then sort of tracing women longitudinally from before, during, and after, um, how does that affect them? And so I, that was the big question that I wanted to look at, you know, and I had a lot of interest in this area because of the multiple tiers in which we as a society deal with substance use, right? My classmates at Harvard Medical School were using, buying, selling drugs of all kinds and varieties to treat many of the same issues that we know that people use drugs for in our society in the U.S. more generally, for performance enhancement, to feel better, to self-treat pain and anxiety, and yet they didn't go to prison or jail for that. So I was really interested in exploring, as part of this work, Um, sort of the, what happens to certain kinds of women who are exposed to policing, to violence, to poverty, to certain kinds of selling and using drugs, those spaces um, and those responses as a society. Yeah, I think that double standard, how, you know, I'm, I come from maybe like an upper middle class Uh, like affluent community where uh, a lot of the people I grew up with used drugs and uh, many, many of us did not experience uh, over-policing and criminal justice uh, consequences. And um, it sounds like that's, you know, obviously true for Harvard medical students. And, and so, I think, uh, yeah, pointing that out is right off the top. Uh, right off the top is so important because what uh, what these women who you interviewed do are things that we all sort of do, and yet um, only they wind up in this sort of brutal system. Exactly. So like one one major theme in your book uh, about these women is self-determination, how in the face of structural violence, the the women you got to know could 
they still, you know, imagined a, a different life for themselves and, and worked toward that, even despite so many barriers. Um, you know, I was wondering if you could maybe talk about one or a few women's stories uh, in particular who kind of uh, illustrate this uh, concept of self-determination? Yeah, I mean, so many of the women that I that I met and got to know over the course of my research really were just um, working so much harder than I could ever imagine that I myself was working at the time, uh, both to survive, uh, to take care of others. Um, you know, I... I got to know someone um, who wanted to be called Serenity in the book. Um, and, you know, I talk about her extensively. You know, I would see her um, at the buprenorphine treatment clinic. I'd see her in jail. Uh, I'd see her in court. I'd see her in the hospital. So I really followed her and got to know her quite well. She had originally come from New Hampshire um, and came through Western Mass and ended up in Boston, often kind of through the trajectories that people end up, you know, kind of uh, what we call addiction trajectories. Um, people were uh, uh, trying to, uh, you know, get get clean or they were trying to go, uh, go to uh, treatment programs. They kind of travel around different states in that way, also moving and following passive drugs and then going into programs and kind of ending up that way and then coming out. And a lot of people end up in Boston. So Serenity ended up in Boston and she really, um, I don't, you know, she just worked incredibly hard. You know, she would do sex work. Um, she, um, she would also kind of, sell uh drugs in a in a low level way um as we know many people who use drugs um often sell drugs she was using drugs uh you know selling drugs just to kind of maintain her own ability to use drugs so this was heroin um and you know so she just worked so hard you know and i think about how hard i worked as a student or even how hard i work as a doctor and it, i just the the kind of labor that she was doing, her exposure to violence, um, her exposure to the elements, being homeless or being outside. Um, I, I was just, could never compare the kind of labor that I do to the kind of labor that she did to survive. Very much trying to, uh, you know, really just make it for herself and, and to live. And, and she was always thinking about her children, always trying to send money to them. Yeah, and it sounds like in these stories, um, you know, taking Serenity's circumstances into perspective here that, um, you know, like, why or how did uh, a punitive uh, approach become some uh, someone's idea of a way to help someone like Serenity. You kind of go into the history of of incarceration and, and women. Um, can you sort of 
unpack the origin of, of the idea that someone like Serenity, um, you know, is, is a criminal. What's so interesting about this is the way in which we, you know, came to criminalize uh, the drug use of, of women in particular. Um, I did archival research into the history of the state women's prison in Massachusetts. And we always had this sense, which got written into laws um, throughout the last hundred years or so, that um, we uh, were, were going to, um, to save the quote unquote fallen women. Um, and we had these very uh, puritanical beliefs um, and these Christian narratives that uh, really are deeply embedded into the moral ethos and also into legislation, really, in which we would uh, incarcerate women or other people who used drugs, um, chronic inebriates, uh, people who um, basically became dependent on alcohol, that we would um, incarcerate them or uh, keep them for their own good. You know, for women, for example, there were these deep double standards where um, people were kept for what was called the indeterminate sentence, which is that uh, because women kind of had fall or to fall in terms of this sense of moral purity, they would hold women for longer periods of time for the same, the same uh, sort of social taboos, um, breaking social taboos, um, uh, than compared to men. So they would hold them for twice as long as they would men. And there were all of, you know, women were, um, uh, were incarcerated for abortion, for, um, you know, what was felt to be stubbornness, um, you know, all kinds of behaviors uh, that were seen as deviant uh, in, the t in that time, even going up through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So being stubborn is a criminal offense. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, these were often poor and working class women, um, you know, who really did not fit into our sense of, you know, upper middle class purity and femininity, um, especially women who, um, you know, had, uh, you know, who drank or who used drugs or who, you know, kind of lived um, outside of these regular norms. Um, you know, one, another through line in your book is, uh, that I get from you personally is, uh, a, a deep sense of, of, hu of, of humility. Uh, you really confront the, the limits of, of medicine in your role as a doctor. You write uh, about serenity, quote, I could give serenity a medication to take away her cravings, but I, could, I couldn't stop the world she lived in from harming her or the ongoing harm she did to herself. And, you know, I just think that's so important to, to listen to a bit more. Can you, can you sort of talk about maybe broadly what it's like to be a doctor in the midst of a, I mean, we're in a national public health emergency with regard to overdoses. 
Um, so on the one hand, you know, your profession is tasked with treating this uh, illness that's occurring in mass right now. But on the other, the, the problems that people like Serenity face also go far beyond anything you as a doctor can do. Can you sort of talk about that bind? Right. So, you know, I think it's really a huge privilege and an honor to care for people who use drugs. Um, at the same time, it's, there is a certain, especially as I've gotten, gone longer and seen more, taken care of more people, um, there's a certain witnessing that um, that you also have to do and a sense of accompaniment that are important as you recognize the limitations of what we can do in medicine. So it's, it's very difficult actually, you know, to be um, providing care in the setting of our overdose crisis and daily witnessing kind of the violence that people have in their lives and really witnessing it, but having very, um, very little that we are able to do to both solve, solve it, prevent it and, um, and heal from it. And, you know, like I said, I can give buprenorphine for cravings, but there's a lot that people are seeking. That's more than just, you know, um, lack of cravings. And so, you know, there's different ways that I think about it. I think about triaging people to keep them alive. And that's, that's, that's been, I spend a lot of my energy there with people who are really facing a ton of insults from homelessness, from poverty, from the criminal justice system. And so trying to keep people alive, I spend a lot of my time doing that. And then once people are kind of stabilized and people feel better, we can work on what it takes to achieve a sense of healing and well-being. And a lot of doctors, I think, don't necessarily have the, the equipment, the language, the time, the energy um, to either participate in either of those buckets to, to, keep, people, to keep people alive um, and then to get healing is really hard. Um, so, you know, for example, we have a lot of great emergency room doctors who are doing lots of innovative things, just trying to keep people alive. Um, and, you know, we are, that's why in my work at Harm Reduction Coalition, I see it as so important because we can really begin to address some of those things, such as criminalization of having a sterile syringe in many states in this country, right? Where someone is participating or having, uh, you know, something in their car that, you know, but, but by all intents, they're taking care of themselves in a healthier way, but they're still incarcerated uh, for possession of a syringe, for example. So like if that is why um, the work that I do is so limited and I try to bring it up to the policy level because I know these policies do harm. I think maybe one thing I wanted to uh, go a little deeper into is the quote unquote treatment that people experience while they're 
incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the Rhode Island Department of Corrections, like as you know, they implemented a, a program that screened people for substance use disorders and if people met certain criteria for opioid use disorder, they were offered either methadone, buprenorphine, or naltrexone. And we know over time that this led to significant reductions in in overdose mortality. Um, You know, it it led to a 12% drop in the whole state, which I think goes to show just how consequential treating people who are incarcerated for addiction actually is at the population level. Um, And I think you know, we should, I should add that most people in this Rhode Island program opted for buprenorphine. And it, it's amazing that, you know, this, these kinds of outcomes um, with this program, that it isn't like rapidly expanding to everywhere. <laughs> um, a lot of places might may only offer medication to women if they're pregnant. They may only offer uh, naltrexone to people and not offer methadone or buprenorphine. Um, can you sort of talk about what, what barriers stand in the way of, of access to the gold standards of treatment inside of jails and prisons? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's worth, um, talking briefly about what happens to most people who become arrested and incarcerated in this country. So, in the majority of um, jails in this country, there is no access to medication for opioid use disorder. We've had three, you know, we have three FDA approved medications, as you mentioned, um, methadone, buprenorphine, and IM naltrexone. And yet, when someone who has an opioid use disorder becomes incarcerated in most places in this country, the traditional way that they are treated is uh, with um, little uh, to no medical attention. Uh, In most cases, people have a health screening when they come into a jail or prison. It might be recognized and they may be given um, medications that are called quote-unquote comfort medications that include um, medications to treat the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. So it might be something like ibuprofen for muscle pain. It might be something like uh, Imodium for diarrhea or Bentol for gas. It might be um, even a medication like uh, hydroxazine, Visteril, or Benadryl for um, insomnia. So there's a wide variety of symptomatic treatments that don't actually work that well um, for, to treat opioid withdrawal that, are, that might be given. People might be kept in a special health, uh, health wing of the, of the jail, or they might go to general population. Um, whereas in the community, we would and should be treating opioid withdrawal with medications to treat withdrawal, uh, including buprenorphine and, and methadone and then moving into a maintenance phase. So like you mentioned in the Rhode Island example, uh, they were quite successful at getting people onto those medications, both to stabilize them in the immediate period to treat 
withdrawal and then to um, bring them to a dose that effectively um, treats cravings and can block exogenous effects of other opioids. So it's just very striking right now, the moment that we're in as um, people around the country are clamoring for access to these effective medications in jails and and prisons. Um, I liken it to taking care of people in the jail who might have had a heart attack and they might be on medications, maybe starting six new medications after having a heart attack. And um, it's, you know, a near fatal incident having a heart attack if you've survived it and the chance of having another attack is very high and you might have to be on medication for the rest of your life. And that's how I liken being on buprenorphine or methadone. If you've survived a non-fatal overdose, your chance of having another one is extremely high. And so if you come into the jail and you need your medication to treat your cholesterol because you had a heart attack, I would never just abruptly stop that medication. Or if I screened you and I saw that your cholesterol was alarmingly high, I would start you on that medication. And that's how we should be thinking about medication for opioid use disorder in jails. But there's so much stigma and uh, you know, there's so much entrenched criminalization um, of, sh- of sheriffs, of correctional officers, of these institutions whose purpose really is exists in some way to exist off of the failure of um, ongoing failures of our society to really address it. So it's it's very compromising. In my research, I did point out that some correctional officers' unions lobby against treatment programs in their prisons and jails. And it's pretty it's pretty deeply entrenched that people uh, there are vested interests that people have and people not getting better. Right. So it's not that it's by any accident that these medications are withheld. Um, There are wardens and, like you said, sheriffs and jailers who view these medications as contraband. Isn't that right? Right. So I spent a chapter exploring kind of why... um, why local sheriffs or sheriffs in the jails and prisons um, really view this medication as contraband. Um, buprenorphine, one of one of the versions of buprenorphine that's available, Suboxone, the film, um, was particularly um, coveted um, and was particularly uh, policed by uh, internal um, uh, prison staff and security. Security. Um, as something that was a means for people to get high. Um, And, you know, I documented and kind of talking to the women that, you know, I met in prison who would use use, um, buprenorphine inside illicitly. And a lot of them, you know, were, you know, trying to deal with the harsh reality of what prison intends to do, um, trying to uh, alleviate the pain of being isolated from your family, their children, um, their community, being traumatized, the environment, uh, exposure to violence, and uh, we're just trying to make it like they've done on the outside. 
and instead they would if they got caught with it they would um they would get sent to solitary confinement or the hole and that would uh that would further um you know it wouldn't really deter people from from doing it in the first place but it would further traumatize them yeah it's uh that chapter in particular was very illuminating about that stigma you mentioned and just the general attitudes and and really um just like rampant misinformation about what medication treatments are and how they work and um you know so much of my time as a writer is uh you know carefully stacking up the evidence um that favors these medications uh you know exactly against the misinformation and it's uh it's like you know sisyphus it's like you i've written the same story a million times and yet the attitudes persist and i'm sure as a doctor you feel the same way yeah i feel the same way and i um i think it's worth examining what other medications in this country have so much stigma encoded and baked into them. I think there's very few other medications that have such a um, societal uh, vilification uh, and stigmatization that's baked into regulations. It's baked into, you know, everyday um, discourse when people are bring up you know, bring bring it up in an AA meeting. You know, it's it's really on it's on so many levels. It's so deeply entrenched. It it merits a further and deeper anthropological analysis of you know sort of how we think about different classes of medications. Why we would think so um, so poorly of of these um, and pick them out as you know particular ones to hate. You recently uh, tweeted, you, you were quote tweeting um, the ACLU who, uh, you know, just filed a, uh, an, a motion for emergency injunctive relief against the uh, Bureau of Prisons because the, they have a, a, a blanket ban on uh, these medications, I think with certain maybe exemptions for pregnant women. And what you quote tweeted was exactly what, you know, you were talking about now. You ask, for what other common and life-saving medications do we have to file lawsuits so patients can continue them if they become incarcerated? And it's right. I don't know any other uh, medicine that falls into this category. And it's not a matter of cost, right? I mean, because the medications are, methadone is extremely cheap. It's pennies uh, for the liquid formulation. And buprenorphine is now generic. And there's many different versions that are competing and driving the cost down. So, you know, if we, if, if, for example, a jail or prison is buying insulin, uh, long-acting insulin called Lantus, the price of that, as you might have known from our national debates around the cost of insulin, has jumped, you know, exponentially right so many offer offer that and um there's no debate about who's going to pay for it yeah there's always the question of how do we pay for this when i think the costs of untreated addiction are uh they far outweigh the costs of 
treating addiction. Right. And it, it gets into some complex health economics about who pays for what medication where, under what status is this person right now? Is this person in a, a county, state, a federal? Um, you know, do they have, uh, it, you know, when you become incarcerated, you lose access or are suspended or um, from Medicaid? Um, but as you probably know, um, uh, people who are incarcerated are the only group of people that have a constitutional right to health care. Um, uh, so it's, it's, very, it's very interesting that um, we still have to have these almost daily fights and we're having fights like this in every single state and on every single jurisdiction because as you are familiar with, um, sheriffs who run their county jail run um have total control over their their county jail you know and so if there's a hundred counties in a state or 50 counties in a state then you know it's up to everyone's discretion uh and no one has any say about this you know i was teaching a class at harvard medical school to some of the um doctors from other countries and they were like why doesn't the government just like make everyone half the medication when they're, you know, at increased chance of dying? <laughs> and I, it was a great question, you know, <laughs> but other countries, you know, these comparative health systems where they have stronger, you know, central governments, right? And we have, you know, this distributed state model with different powers against the federal government and all these other things, but we just don't have uh, you know, our, our country has such a unique, um, a unique framework that, you know, I was, I was shocked, you know, that they asked that question and it's a good one. Um, but I couldn't imagine a world where we, you know, we just had medications that were WHO essential medications available in all facilities, you know, around the country. That would be shocking. Yeah, shocking that uh, medications that we know save lives be made available to people. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. And I, I think what this uh, point really leads to uh, at the macro level that I, I think people, especially like journalists kind of covering the, the opioid crisis or overdose crisis, whatever we're in right now, is that incarceration and policing are rarely identified as drivers of overdose and death. So, for instance, we know that people leaving uh, incarceration, uh, people leaving these, these um, settings, correctional settings, they are at astronomically higher rates of overdosing and dying than the general population. And when we have millions of people uh, sort of churning through the system every year and uh, a not insignificant number of them have an addiction or are struggling with uh, their addiction and statistically many of them after leaving, will die of an overdose. It is so clear to me looking at this system from way above it that the jails, the uh, correctional settings are drivers 
of overdose. They're a huge driver of overdose. And to prevent that, we should prevent sending people to prison and jail in the first place. You know, and I fight on all levels for, you know, preventing that from happening. And at the same time, you know, advocating for medications in these facilities now, because until we can envision a world where no one has to go to prison or jail for a substance use disorder, we will still have people being incarcerated and set up for a disproportionately high risk of overdose and death after leaving facilities such as these in two weeks um, or, you know. So, um, you know, I think there is now some in increased recognition of the role that jails and prisons are playing. Um, for example, last year, uh, the National Sheriff's Association put out a pretty good um, pamphlet on expanding access to medication for addiction treatment for opioid use disorder in correctional facilities. So, you know, I think we're at a moment where things are changing. You know, people are still dying. I think the change is happening very slowly. In my work at Harm Reduction Coalition, I provide technical assistance to jails in New York State who are starting treatment programs with buprenorphine and methadone. So I help set them up for success, um, help design their policies and procedures for um, giving the medication to patients safely and how to transition them and get them back home with the medication that they need to prevent people from dying. So this is happening. It's just happening very slowly. Right. It's like we uh, should obviously be in favor of programs like Rhode Island and, and Rikers that provide uh, quality uh, care for people with addiction. But at the same time, we should also be thinking about a world where people with addiction are not criminalized and sent to jail in the first place. Right. So like, I feel like if, um, you know, someone wanted to give me a multi-million dollar grant, I could, I could set up a shop, you know, that would be, you know, send me everyone that I ever encountered in my book and send them to me and my friends and we'll take care of them, not in a prisoner jail. I would love to see that happen. <laughs> and I would love to see that happen because it would be not just about providing people the medications that they need, but really trying to address what has led them to that and, you know, taking their expertise, taking their knowledge, taking them as, um, you know, people with tons of experience and real value to that enterprise and really finding ways for them to both get well um, and to really make lives for themselves that are meaningful and that really give them a sense of purpose. And so many of the women that I talked to in my book really wanted to be addiction counselors. They really wanted to help other people and care for other people. And they were effectively shut out of these opportunities in formal labor markets because of their histories of incarceration. And so I could envision, you know, just 
in a in a wonderful world, you know, just taking, you know, people like the people that I encountered in my research and people that I take care of today, my patients and, you know, giving them opportunities to, you know, engage in, in ways where they can really make a huge difference. And they have a wealth of expertise and knowledge about things that I could never know. And they should be paid for that and be able to make a living and, and, and also derive a sense of self-efficacy and meaning to their lives that um, so many people struggle for. That sounds amazing. And it's an opportunity that a lot of people who do drugs or have some form of problematic or chaotic drug use, uh, a lot of people do eventually get that opportunity. But for these women who are sort of walking around with scarlet letters, you know, the, the very thing that might be able to help them stabilize their lives, like you're saying, like a, a meaningful uh, job that, that gives them, um, that uses their expertise and also provides a lot of uh, meaning, um, they don't get to do that. And, it's, and it keeps them stuck and churning in and out of these sort of brutal places. Um, turning or, or dead, you know, I talk about Lydia and Lydia's death really impacted me very deeply. Um, when I found out that she overdosed in her mother's bathroom and was found dead, you know, and so I'm just glad that I got a chance to know her and she really wanted me to tell her story. And, you know, so I just think about that, that, motivates me very strongly to to continue doing the work that we do because these are preventable. Yeah, I can't imagine what it you know would would feel like to be, you know, with someone and learning about them and getting to know them um and then yeah, in just one moment this person vanishes and um, like you're saying, there's so much untapped potential and creativity and expertise among these women that, you know, as a doctor, you see, uh, but the, uh, the status quo, you know, really keeps that, that potential, um, you know, closed in. Right. And it's hidden. And a lot of people don't really, don't really care to or believe that people who use drugs have expertise and are valuable to society. And that's, that's really a very predominant feeling, you know, and I tell people to go read the book by the historian uh, Markell at University of Michigan, um, Anatomy of Addiction, that's about Freud and, um, uh, William Halstead, so that you know their relationships with cocaine, and you know, William Halstead was one of the quote fathers of modern surgery, surgical technique. He's the one who taught us how to use antiseptic technique for surgeries, which was clearly life saving and changed the way that we were able to operate in ways where people didn't die of raging um, infections and sepsis. And mastectomies, you know, he was one of the, you know, innovators of that technique for breast cancer. And 
you know, he's done countless things for surgery, but basically spent his life, you know, injecting cocaine. And then he went to um, treatment where they gave him morphine for that. So he basically was doing cocaine and morphine, um, operating, you know, going in and out of, um, you know, his troubled kind of use for decades. And he was extremely productive and extremely useful and extremely valuable to medicine um, and was working, you know, in ways that we would not necessarily want him to be. And he was plagued by demons and he struggled with substance use his entire career, but at the same time was an educated, privileged white doctor who was able to, you know, maintain um you know, work with that privilege and con continue uh, continue working in the field and contributed immensely. So I think about what allowed him to succeed and continue to contribute and in a meaningful way and develop expertise and train other doctors. And, uh, you know, then I think about the women like Lydia and Serenity, and I think about their vast um, realms of expertise and how you know, they're denigrated. No one, no one listens to them. No one cares, cares for them. No one cares about them. And they're shut out of the formal labor market. And so it's, it's a huge contrast. And it stems from the underlying belief that social belief that's predominant and prevailing that we believe that people who use drugs, um, their lives don't matter. And that they're not worthwhile and they don't contribute in meaningful ways to our society. And that's very harmful to them, and it's and it's deadly. I can't help but think that someone like Dan Big is a modern corollary to, you know, Halstead or Freud in a way, where Dan liberated a drug called naloxone from uh, from strictly being used in medical settings, and was instrumental in distributing that to everyone everywhere and he you know died last year from from an overdose and and no one i think a lot of people maybe were taken aback that the executive director of this um you know of this instrumental nonprofit in chicago could have saved so many lives and changed society in such a dramatic way Certainly, I would certainly think that comparison is accurate. It's very spot on, you know, and he's an his life and, you know, is an inspiration to all of us um, that despite, you know, kind of ongoing struggle and, you know, despite what people are going through, um, people who use drugs just have immense potential and a lot to give and can really change um, society can change policies and really can save lives. So, you know, we're almost at the hour and, and to, to kind of close out, I, um, you know, wanted to think back to something you said about, you know, in this perfect world where you and, and your friends can, can treat these women instead of jails and prisons and, not only just keep them alive and, and stabilize them, but also, um, you know, address the the problems in their life that 
the you know the burdens that they're carrying and the things that happened to them and the horrors they witnessed um you know in among the women you spoke to like how rampant was maybe sexual abuse or physical abuse or trauma in their lives you know probably long before they used drugs ever oh extremely common um the percentage was basically everyone would have uh classified as having some form of physical verbal emotional sexual abuse um uh, and um you know some started you know some dated back you know, to very young to when when they were children um, thinking about adverse childhood experiences or aces thinking about um you know how could these have been prevented how how could um how could they have grown up in a different world that was something that i spend a lot of time talking to people like serenity about and the real problem is the way in which they embrace this dominant narrative that it was their fault and that they could have simply made a better choice. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, their lives were determined and they were destined to use substances. Um, not saying that at all, but they really embraced this um, dominant culture that it was their fault and they were to blame and they should have just made a better uh, choice. Um, and really we know that's not how addiction or um, problematic or chaotic substance use works. Um, and, you know, that's why I go into such depth in the book talking about people's lives and their experiences because they come across, you know, feeling very strongly this social belief that it's their fault and they're to blame and they get caught in the cycle of blame and guilt and shame and blame and guilt and shame, which really is not an effective place for change. We know that from the medical literature about behavior change in general, that, you know, shame uh, really doesn't, you know, it makes people feel really bad. It, it often um, leads to more shame and it doesn't really, doesn't really work that effectively. Um, the negative emotions that people have really can't, uh, they really get caught in a cycle of it. So, you know, I try to present people's lives in really, um, in really detailed and complex ways, including trauma and try to just show that um, we really, to kind of take some of the blame off of them and to envision ways in which we can, um, we can not have a society that's, that does this to women, um, that treats them very harshly, that holds them to a double standard, that shuts them out of the labor market, that um, criminalizes substance use during pregnancy, um, and all of these things that make uh, make their lives so complex and yet uh, so so very like harsh and hard. Um, so I hope that that the book um, helps people understand that. And I would love to envision a place where people people didn't have to go to prison and jail and. I, whenever anyone says jail saved my life, like Serenity says to me, I completely turn it around and I say, you know, we, you saved your own life. You know what I mean? Like, like you uh, 
what are the conditions that you had in jail that we that we can give for you on the outside or that we haven't been able to provide for you on the outside? How can we get to a place of respite and healing that's and structure and the daily sense of safety that you have maybe while incarcerated that you don't have on the outside? So when I try to change the narrative for them a little bit about not that jail saved my life, but that you saved your own life, you're a survivor, and you know how have society failed you to make you think that jail saved your life, and how how can we change those circumstances? Yeah, I think that um, you know that kind of reframe, you know that you know it's it is a very entrenched among uh, you know people in in recovery that I that I've interviewed and that I've spoken to that uh, that refrain that jails save their life I, I hear that often and and I can't help but think you know like you um, did it <laughs> but also like what uh, what about jail or what was happening there that that you know was perhaps therapeutic or or what wasn't but um, I think the larger point that that you're getting at here is um, if we can organize society in such a way that reduces the likelihood of young people and young women experiencing um, such cruelty and brutality that ultimately, you know, down the road, it will prevent so many problems that that are at you know, quote, epidemic levels like suicide and, and drinking and, and overdose and and all these problems that um, are, you know, for the past two decades have been rising and rising and rising. And when people say jail saved my life, we can unpack that being like having a roof over your head saved your life. Having three square meals saved your life. Having access to a doctor saved your life. Having access to you know, various, you know, a, a structure, having access to some educational opportunities, having a, a, a sense of a place where you weren't going to get assaulted or raped by your partner. Um, all those things don't have to do with jail. But, you know, so when people say jail saved my life, those are all the things that they're referring to. <laughs> Um, that we should be able to envision and put into place for people that is not a carceral institution. And that's when I talk about having a place for people. My dream being having a place for people like the women in my book is being able to provide those things um, for them. And we do that in scattered ways, you know, in this country, but it's, you know, we might provide one thing or the other thing and nothing is really centralized, easy, there's no one-stop shop for it all. You know, you might have housing, um, but you might not have access to a psychiatrist or for trauma-informed care. Or, you know, so we have these dislocated care systems where you might have access to some of those. But it would be really wonderful to have all of those services and uh, features of getting better from substance use disorders in the same place with access to medication, with access to exercise or healing or yoga, or whatever, housing, nutrition, all of the things that make people feel really um, not only live, but thrive um, would be wonderful. 
Agreed. And I think that's why your book is so important because it, it illustrates exactly the need for that kind of society that you uh, have a vision for. And um, I just want to thank you so much for working every day to make that a reality. Thank you so much for having me on Narcotica. You're so welcome. So the book is Getting Wrecked by Dr. Kimberly Sue. Getting Wrecked, Women, Incarceration, and the American Opioid Crisis. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on. This was uh, incredible. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on narcocast.com. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, who has just been killing it lately, and our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music by Pictures of the Floating World. Narcotica is sponsored by Billy Bob's Big Long Slong Shape Bongs. Just kidding. That's a made-up product, I hope. In all seriousness, we don't want to clutter this program with stupid ads. So thank you so much to our Patreons who help keep this program free from corporate influence. We couldn't do it without you. If you want to help us out, join dozens of pro-drug advocates on our Patreon. Or help us get the word out. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We're finally on Spotify! Tell your friends about us and carve our name into the bathroom mirror at Burger King. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about the medical benefits of cocaine, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.